Again, thank you, Pastor Gary, and thank you for a wonderful worship session this morning. I think the message in there was very powerful. Is our King alive? Amen. He is. Is he capable of moving mountains? Yes. Does he still do miracles? Yes. yes, he does. In fact, a tear came to my eye during that particular song because I think the first miracle was the day I walked into an ACC church with no Christian, nobody took me there. Steve Penny in Calvary on the Sunshine Coast. And the Lord forgave me when I sought it. That's a miracle. Second miracle, and is now classified as a miracle, is that I'm being studied by the University of Queensland as a miracle because I was not meant to be standing here right now. You'll share a bit of that later, an operation that has been classified as a miracle recovery. Miracle. And so I can now classify that, yes, I'm being studied by a PhD student at the University of Queensland. I tell you what, as an academic, that is really awkward, you know, because I studied other things or other people, now I'm being studied I go, ugh, I don't know what to feel about that, you know. But anyhow, I'll share a little bit of that today because I'm not here as a scientist, as Pastor Gary has indicated. I'm here to share a personal story, but one that did involve some very basic elemental science. And I hope the message you do get today is quite simple, that even in the absence of a Christian, in the presence of just science alone, God walks, works wonderful miracles and brings scientists to Christ. Yeah through the very things they discover or research over their life. So, a little bit of background. Yes, I've got all the qualifications. Forget all about all that. That's the past. No longer work at universities anymore. But a uh, little bit of background. I did become a scientist. I'll put this on and see if this works. Or did I just turn it off? Up, oh, oh, go back. There we are. I'm a scientist. That's my future picture. <laughs> If you haven't noticed, my hair is growing out this way there and down there. You know, it looks a bit funny, but uh, you'll see why later. Um, why did I become a, a scientist or so on? I did so because I was trying to escape. I was raised in a dysfunctional family, total alcoholism on both sides. All my aunties and uncles were equally alcoholic. The violence was incredible. I still carried scars on my body from that violence. I thought education might help me. High school was tragic. It was a secular high school, but what is not known amongst the community is a secular high school committed a certain crime more than the religious schools did. Government doesn't want to admit that. So I became popular with a number of teachers. So by the time I was 18, I was totally dysfunctional. And if you told me that a father loved me, I was not interested in hearing what you had to say. I had a father who said that and the violence that came with it and then teachers would say that and then the violence that came with that. I was not interested in hearing or speaking to Christians who would say there is a father who loves you. So I sought education. Why? Because I wanted to get away from that family, that community. In fact, I wanted to get away from this country because nobody was there in those days. Today it's a different story. But in those days it was not. And so what did I do? I decided to study, of all things, would you believe, landscapes, floods. I became what's known as a flood geologist or flood geomorphologist. I chased floods all around the world. I see movies about these typhoon people. Oh, oh, how, how sad they are. They, they run along, place a piece of equipment in front of a typhoon and run away. Can't do that with a flood. You have to get in. Have I been washed away? Yes. SES out? Yes. Rescued? Yes. Woken up from an unconscious state at the edge of a drain? Yes. I loved it. It was exciting because it was so different to my upbringing. And so I studied fossils and all those sorts of things and microbes. And don't look at me, you know, like when I admit that the person who goes around Australia from CSIRO, Warish Ahmed, who looks at all the sewerage for COVID 
is actually one of my PhD students. Don't look at me like that. You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know. In fact, when I came to South Australia, I loved it. I, I grew up here in the early years, much earlier. Uh, I lived in Elizabeth, Sefton Park, went to Nailsworth, went to Enfield High, and they were great times in those particular schools. When I came back to South Australia, oh, I loved it. I was greeted at the airport <laughs> because I can't wear a mask and I've got a lot of paperwork and I can't have an injection. It's all medically grounded. Oh, everybody wanted to talk to me. I've never sat there with multiple federal police going, oh, I, oh, this is so exciting, South Australia welcomes me. They looked at me so blandly, just didn't say a thing, looked at all the paperwork and walked away. Oh, okay, thank you, welcome to South Australia. But I loved it coming back here again, honestly, absolutely loved it. And so when I did graduate from my PhD and all those studies, I decided to take off overseas. Where did I go? Anywhere I could, looking for promotion, looking for growth, looking to really understand who I was, define myself. What am I? Am I a man? Am I intelligent? You know, should I ever have a relationship type thing? What should I do? Did I know what love was? No. At the age of 16, a, a young Christian boy down the road said, come around to my place. I went around to his place. His father walked home. His mother had a bit of a tear. The day was not so good. So his father walked up, put his arm around her and kissed her. I nearly fell off my seat. At 16, I had never seen that in my life. I did not know how to communicate and connect with people. So where did I go? I went to China for 10 years. Did I go as an expatriate on that big income? No, I went as a local. So today I'm a friend of China. For 10 years they recognised this expatriate didn't want the money, he wanted something else. And I learned to speak a bit of Cantonese and all the rest of it and uh, loved all that. I went to Finland for a couple of years. You know, I just went to the most remote places I could to get away from everybody else here. And I went to Finland and I loved Finland. You know why? Because the men there are just as dysfunctional as I am or was. They were, they were just silent. Finnish men are silent. And I remember sitting there in a sauna one day and uh, there was a pastor in the, in the sauna as well. And they roll their R's. So my name is Ron. And they speak with almost a Russian accent. Ron, you are a good Finnish man. I went, what? Why am I a good Finnish man? He said, because Ron, you have sat there for one hour and said nothing. <laughs> so if any of you younger ladies go to Finland and a Finnish man comes up to you and says, I love you, understand this, he will say it once in his life. He just did. There's a CNN program on that. They actually do. And when the reporter asks the, these, these husbands, well, what happens if you don't love her? Well, if I don't love her, I will tell her I don't love her. They tell you once. So understand that if you finish, if you, if you go to Finland as a young lady and, and, and a young man says, I love you, it is, it is real. It is honest. And the one thing I did love about Finnish men is they are friends for life. They connect for life. May not have a lot of discussion, but we're friends. <laughs> so, so I loved all that. I went to Libya. I worked for Gaddafi. Do you think I cared who I worked for? Now, I wasn't working as a tourist, by, terrorist, by the way. I was, uh, well, I, I did drive through Tripoli at 160 k's an hour because there's no speed limits in Tripoli. And we went out one day in a Mercedes just to try that at 3 a.m. in the morning, of course. And my mate next to me was screaming. He said, stop, stop. I, it was just like in one of, you know when you go to those, those centres and you can drive a pretend car? It was just like that, doing 160 past these skyscrapers. Man, it was cool. I loved it. But you don't get into trouble because there's no speed limits. Now, mind you, Libya has the highest death rate on roads of any country in the world and uh, all of that. But I love working there. I was doing, again, uh, water resources, floods and all those sort of things, which are rare as. I went to uh, Cook Islands, worked there, uh, South Africa. Love that, South Africa. So many incidents there were just good fun. Um, I was in Peru. Oh, if you go to Peru, that's, that's one. Well, it's not corrupt. It's just the way they live. But I rocked up at the airport. Security threw open my bag, all the machine guns went and the guy looked at me and said, Senor, what is my camera doing in your bag? <laughs> you know what you do? You don't argue. 
Oh, oh, I am so sorry, Senor. I don't know how your camera got in my bag. Please take it. Okay. But you're under arrest. You have no visa. I, I don't need a visa. I'm an Australian. Anyhow, I was placed under house arrest in Peru. Took us days to work out what it would take. And it was 50 US dollars. That's what it took. And so when I went into the immigration department, they, they really, it's just like a movie, you know, with, with Bogart in there type thing. And they're all the people with feet up on the desk and these big, slow-moving fans going like that. And we finally went up and said, you know, senor, big problem, you know, mucho problema, mucho problema. We have to be in the Amazon and all the rest of it, study floods. Um, and uh, we said, look, we've put 50 US dollars in. It's not a bribe. You've got you to say it's not a bribe. No, no, no. One of your officers has to go to the bank when it's open because we can't wait. We have to catch a plane. And uh, look, we know it'll take time off, so this is to pay for his salary. He'll probably do it at lunchtime, so we're gonna, this is also cover his lunch. And we don't want him wasting time, so this pays also for a taxi. Did that guy slip the 50 into his pocket straight away, nodded, and the entire place came alive. Paperwork was being stamped everywhere. <laughs> and then they did the usual thing as they do in Peru. You know, young boy, polish his shoes. I got my shoes polished wherever I went because you bribe and you, you, the, the benefit you get is polished shoes. And as I walked out, there was an Australian couple sitting there and they just said, what did you just do? How did you do that? I just walked past and I said, 50 US dollars. Kept going. And they just, thank, thank you, now we know what the rule is. <laughs> so I loved it all, travelling the world, all great stuff. South Africa was great. Traced by a rhinoceros once. Um, they're half blind, basically, and it was night time, so he was running at the lights of the car I was driving. So I put it in reverse and just drove backwards, and I had to get the people in the back of the car to tell me, is it left down or right down? You know, how do I... I don't know, I can't see a thing going back at this speed. And they just said, there's a road coming up, be prepared to swing right, you know, swing down. I went, okay, and now I swerved around. And the rhinoceros came to a bit of a stop because no lights. They're now pointed this way, not in front of him. And so... We just sat there quiet for a moment and then he got all agitated again because another car was coming up the road that I was on <laughs> and he took off straight past us. <laughs> I loved it. Absolutely loved all that travel because that helped me grow up. I met people of different cultures, different background um, and different religions. Was I approached when I was in Libya to become Islamic? Yes. Was I approached in, in China and all these other places? Study Buddhism, study Taoism and all the rest of it. Um, and so on. So I, I was exposed to a lot of all that, but I rejected it all. But anyhow, one thing I did learn at university as I went through, and it's still today, is they say that landscapes and fossils and all these things I studied were pointing to evolution as a theory in those days, and a very minimal pointing to the Bible. There were some little pieces of evidence that suggested the Bible was right, but the bulk of it pointed to evolution. But as I travel the world, one of the things I found very interesting is what is science? What is it? The media thinks it's factual. They think it's the truth. But it's not. It has, if you bring it down to two simple concepts, one of them is experimental. That's what the media says science is. That's when I give you an experiment with glassware, chemicals, timing, processes, and you do exactly as I have done, what answer will you get? The same, yes. That is what people consider science is, but it's not. Most of science is actually the other side of it all. It's a sort of a, a forensic science or a historical science where you have to interpret from scattered pieces of information. So when I'm out in the field, and there's a rock over there and a rock over there. Was I there when those rocks were created? Nope. So what do I have to do? I have to somehow connect them. To do that, I have to use my imagination, my innovation, my, my free thinking. Now that applies through most of earth sciences, geomorphology where I was, flood sciences, biology, all of those things, astrophysics. You can't go and create a black hole and just change some of the parameters and see how it'll differ. You can't do that. So what happens is much of that interpretation that you see today is not based on factual science. It's based on interpretational science. Now, I want to drive that one home so powerful because it changed my life. It did. So I'm going to be an academic right now and I'm going to test you. Oh, yeah, look at you now. Yeah, you're getting worried. And in, in the old days, I used to walk up to those students who weren't looking at me. Oh, heads have raised everywhere. Okay, that's great. <laughs> 
Nobody's falling asleep. Okay, I'm going to give you $1 million to go to South Africa. You're going to look for some fossil bones for me. I love dinosaurs. I want a dinosaur named after me. Okay, so I'm giving you a million dollars. And you go to South Africa and you come back and you say, I found one dinosaur bone here, certain shape, size, dimension, colour, blah, blah, blah. And over here I found another dinosaur bone of a certain shape, size, colour, dimension. Very, very similar to that one there. Put your hand up if you come back to Australia and you say to me, that is the same dinosaur. They're two pieces from the one dinosaur. Put your hand up now if you're going to say that to me. Congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. Wonderful. You and I are going to write a paper together, publish it in academia. We're both going to be promoted for this one. This is fantastic. Put your hand up if you would come back from South Africa and say to me, no, they are not the same dinosaur. They're not even the same species. Put your hand up if you say that. Congratulations, fantastic, wonderful. You and I are going to write a paper saying it's not the same and we're going to become famous and be promoted, okay? Here's the question you did not want or did not expect. Put your hand up. If you have not yet, put your hand up. Do you think I gave you $1 million to go to South Africa to find some fossil bones and you did and you come back and you tell me, I don't know. <laughs> that is not how academia works. You will come back with an interpretation. If you don't come back with an interpretation, kiss your career goodbye. Yeah. It's over. You have not got a chance. You could try it once and say, give me another half million, I'll go back and find the answer. You might get away with that. But if you don't come back with an interpretation, your career is over. Your job is over. That's what you rely on, you see? So I want you to understand now that every time the media picks up and says, oh, we've done this, you know, we found this, this is the meaning of it, ask yourself the question, where did the evidence come from? Were they able to replicate it and duplicate it through experimentation or did they interpret it? Because they were not there when they found it. Or rather, they were there when they found it. They were not there when it was deposited or laid down. Okay? That is so critical to the biological and earth sciences. Yet today, we, don't, we basically ignore that and we take what they say almost as gospel, the truth. And we must be very wary of that. Okay, so I thought I had a bit of fun here with some fossils just to show you what really changed my life. And uh, so I'm going to ask the question, uh, how is a fossil created? And there's no argument here between Christians and secular scientists and atheists. We all agree that a fossil is created by the same manner. And it's simple as this. First of all, I'm going to use the marine as an example because well over 95% of all fossils we find are marine of origin. And so I thought I'd use a happy little fish swimming in the water as an example. How does, how does this this little fish become fossilised. Well, the thing that's going to panic this little fish is sediment. That's my one scientific word. Dirt is what it is. Dirt. From your backyards, your agricultural fields, your construction sites, or whatever else that the media says we do at a disastrous environmental level. Dirt. Why? Because it's going to change the temperature, the viscosity, the salinity food supply, everything in the water. But more importantly, that fish is panicking because it knows that it could be well with lots of sediment. It will be buried. Now it's very unhappy. It's a dead fish and very unhappy. But there's lots of sediment on top of it, so now it becomes fossilised. Now it's happy. <laughs> it's happy because it knows that a scientist like myself or someone will come along find it and give it a new name and a new interpretation. So if you ever see that fish in a museum, it's Ronicus nelicoritis, okay? <laughs> and you see those things coming out there at the back of the head. They are not fins. That's not my interpretation. They are the first claws that allow that fish to climb onto land. <laughs> That's my interpretation. Okay, so what do we know? 
There are many features that create a fossil, but the two most important things are it has to be buried deeply and it has to be buried fast. If it's not buried deeply and fast, it will become predated. It will be eaten by something else. Or it will simply rot. It'll bloat and float. You see what I'm saying? That's what happens. So we need lots of sediment and we need it coming fast. Because without that, you're not getting fossils. How do we know it? Well, look, there's a great fish there in perfect form. What happened to the tens of thousands of fish that, that died on the Murray-Darling a couple of years back? What did they do? They bloated and floated. Did they become fossils? No, because they were predated. They were eaten. They decayed. All of those things. And also there was no sediment. There was no dirt to bury them. But So when we see that, that perfect fish, that had to be buried rapidly and in deep sediment to create the pressure and the temperature needed for fossilization. So therefore we make an assumption. There must be lots and lots of dirt, lots and lots of sediment. And then people go, well, there is, isn't there? Look at that. There's a construction site. Lots of sediment is coming down there. Look at the colour of that. But again, is that real or is that your interpretation? The other question you have to ask is, is the sediment, even if we find a high concentration of sediment there, is it all going to be dumped in one spot or will it be spread over a large area? In most cases, it's going to be spread over a very large area, quite a large area, in fact. Some of the clay particles may go well out past the river system, down into the ocean, all sorts of things. And so that's why I was in the Cook Islands, loving it there looking at sediments coming down, going out into the coral reef, because if that destroys coral reef in the Cook Islands, that's destroyed the tourism industry. But even there, I met Christians. I'll just touch on that. As I went around the world, I did go to Christian locations, just out of interest, but also because if my boss was Christian, I had to play the game. I went along just to uh, make sure my boss liked me, etc. And I went there. Cook Islands were so funny, though. I, I got there, and I'm with a... Uh, the New Zealand aid agency pay lots of money for that sort of thing. And I'm sitting there and, and all the, the ministers are there and they said, right, we're going to have a chat now and, uh, okay, so let's pray. And they all started to pray and I'm going, what? I'm sitting in a government department and they're all praying. And I said, you, you, you're praying? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm the minister for agriculture and, yeah, I'm the reverend of this church. Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm the Minister for Environmental Science and I'm the pastor at this church. Oh, okay. Unusual. So I thought it's unusual. So I thought one day I'd just have fun. I'd go along to the, one of their beautiful white buildings and see what they meant by this churchy thing. And I went into there and, of course, it was obvious I was not a Christian. Everyone else comes in, you know, so happy, singing, high-fiving. And I'm walking in going, mm, what sort of place is this, you know? I'm not comfortable here. And during the singing similar to what you had there, beautiful singing, this huge Cook Islander football player sitting behind me reaches across, grabs me on my shoulders, starts to rub my shoulders like this, and he goes, hey, chill, bro, chill. It's okay, it's chill, just chill. <laughs> I go, I just look at him, are you insane? You know? So it goes back to that clip you had at the beginning, doesn't it? You don't know who to, to, do, to do that to. And I was, I was like, what on earth is this Cook Island's like. Anyhow, I loved it. And so on. But let me just show you how much sediment there really is around the world, how much is transported down in rivers and deposited and so on. We map the oceans and the rivers and the floodplains everywhere around the world. We have tens of thousands of gauging stations and monitoring stations. We have them across the planet everywhere. I built many myself. We have them across in the oceans measuring the sediment. The total summation of all this data, I'm just going to give you a very quick heads up. In the oceans alone, the maximum of amount of sediment deposited in any one location is estimated over, over 70 years to be 50 millimetres over 1,000 years. In other words, we couldn't even measure it. We couldn't measure it. How does 95% of all fossils become marine if everywhere on the planet you do not see more than 50 millimetres in 1,000 years? Do you think something's going to fossilise in 1,000 years? No, it will be predated. It won't work for a cockroach. It's not going to work for a T-Rex. So something was wrong there as I travelled the world and became a sediment expert and a flood expert chasing floods. And so then my friend said, no, come closer to shore, Ron, and don't even try to understand that image. It's a, it's a computer image of an offshore continental shelf. So the deep blue up on the top right there is the deep ocean 
Coming back in there, the little bumpy bits, that's Rockhampton, all that area around there. See a bit of a coastline drawn there. And all that other area is underwater from uh, up to 80 metres deep. Now, what happens there, we measure sediment because you'd think that's where most of the river sediment will go. It'll be washed out on the continental shelf. Well, the answer is, look at the figures there. Wow, up to 400 millimetres in 1,000 years. Whoa, what am I fossilising with that? Not a cockroach again because you imagine over 1,000 years, it's got to be quick and it's got to be deep. So let's say even if it's one year, could you even show that between your two fingers? No, you can't. That doesn't work. So you can see now I'm becoming quite confused as a scientist. I'm told by everybody we need lots of sediment, we need it piled on fast, but I'm not seeing it anywhere as I travel around the world and did studies all around the world. What about mangroves? Well, mangroves, wow, 3.6 millimetres a year is the global figure given. Oh, isn't that incredible? You think there's a lot of sediment there because you sink into it. That's a perception. The reality is you're not going to get even centimetres. Why? Because it will kill the mangroves. It's not the way it works. And so that shoe that that young boy has is the only thing I've ever seen fossilised in these days. Amazon River. Now, this is interesting. Many dinosaur sediment, uh, uh, fossils and others, and many mammals and all the rest, are wrapped up in the ground as fossils in what we call alluvial sediments, which means flood sediments. Isn't that interesting? They actually are in flood sediments. You hear the media talk about asteroids and meteors or landslides. No, no, they have a different sediment, different characteristic, different fingerprint. What we find is the vast majority, vast, 99.9 something, are found, the fossils are found in flood sediments, which have a unique characteristic about them. Ah, so it starts to get you thinking, what happened? And so in those floodplains around the world, uh, there's many figures there. Oh, look, there's, there's thousands of different figures from different countries and all the rest of it. Fiji gets a big one of 3.2 centimetres a year. I'm sorry, that still won't fossilise a cockroach because any other animal could come along, dig it up and eat it. It's not a problem. And it's not enough pressure and temperature. In fact, the largest amount of sediment found anywhere on a larger scale was 10 centimetres and that was found in New South Wales by moi. I found that. And so I became the finder of the most dirt... From, and I got named the dirtiest person, but, but more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, I have travelled the world and I have loved announcing that New South Wales is the dirtiest state on the planet. <laughs> love the clapping, love the clapping, yes. But again, that's not enough. Ten centimetres is not enough. So my friend said, tsunamis, big things like that, that must be it. Because everywhere I went around the world, I remember sitting in a, in a cafe in Iquitos on the Amazon discussing this. And they said, oh, you've got to look at these incredible, these are biolo biological friends that I had. You've got to look at these catastrophes. Well, guess what? The largest catastrophe we've ever seen, which is in, from, a, from a flood point of view or a water point of view, is the tsunami that hit Indonesia a couple of years back and after all the Red Cross had gone in, we go in. Now, I didn't go in on this particular one. How much sediment did those people find? Ten centimetres. Whoopee-doo. Now, you would go, that's not right, because in the movie, the wave comes in, it smashes things. Yes, it does. Look at the houses. They're smashed to pieces. But look at the trees. Are they pulled out of the ground? No. Look at the grass. That brown area down there is the grass and there are people. I think it's on the next slide. There we are. There's a person and there's grass. The grass is covered in a light staining of sediment. Wow. Why? Because what this, when the tsunami comes in, it's not a giant wave. It's an energy wave. That's why people get in boats and go out because there is no big wave out there. It's an energy transfer and only when that energy wave becomes, it, 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 when you start to shallow and it starts to slow down on that, does a wave actually be created right at the edge. So there is no massive sediment movement. And the Cook Islands, I was actually called by the New Zealand Embassy one day. Come on, Ron, we're all going down. I said, what for? To look at the tsunami. I said, are you kidding me? You're going down there. We all went down there. I was a bit afraid. And then in it came. It's big. <laughs> big 
because it's the offshore shape, the bathymetry or the shape of the underwater that creates a tsunami. In this case, because they're coral reef, it goes straight down. So the energy wave comes in, it doesn't do a thing until it hits that, and now it just hits it straight on, can't create a wave. And I went, wow, I've seen a tsunami. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so did I enjoy all of that? I loved it all. Was I shot at? Yes. Arrested, as you've heard? Yes. Pinned against the wall in a terrorist attack? Yes. At that point, I thought, where's my camera? As I watched the SWAT team roll out of trucks, just like they do in the movies. Hit the ground because the uh, terrorists had uh, grenades. I loved it. Did I get hepatitis? Yes. Ross River fever? Yes. Everything else that went on. Something got in my gut, staphylococci infection. And for three months, I had to open my gut every day or every second day and stuff an eight-inch rope in there and attach a vacuum pump. So I'd try to sleep at night as they sucked everything out of my gut. And you get this... And then you get this, this part of my gut went out. You know, I thought, eh, can't sleep like this. Because they can't do anything with a staphylococci infection in your gut. You can't go in and amputate it. So I, I just had a, I'm, I'm serious, I had a great time. I loved it. Because it just, it helped me grow up and understand and sort of become a proper human being who could understand people and all the rest of it. So I loved it all. Did recent paleontological studies support all that? Just very quickly give you a heads up, yes, they did. Studies by fossil people and biologists prove exactly what I've said about a flood, and that is that we've got a real problem understanding how fossils were created. There's a study done at the University of Queensland where they put baby crocodiles under 20 centimetres of sediment to study how fossils are formed. And guess what the crocodile did? Bloated and floated, broke out. I have this humour, but CMI wouldn't let me, Creation Ministries wouldn't let me draw a cartoon with the PhD students stomping on the crocodile, you know, stay down, stay down. They, they, would, they wouldn't let me do that. They said, we've got to be nice, you know. You, you've got to read Paul and Peter and be nice to people. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was all interesting. The Canadians decided to dump some pigs offshore to see how fossils were created in the, in the, in the oceans. They came back years later. The pigs have been totally eaten, scavenged, all the rest. What, what do you see missing to create a fossil? Sediment. It's been there for years, no sediment. So that was a complete waste of Canadian money. And then a study was done, which is really an interesting one. They've for 20 years now, they've recorded, 20 years they've been taking lizard legs and so on, putting them between two pieces of concrete, putting them under incredible pressure and temperature, and after 24 hours opening it up, and guess what they'd find? Liquid. That's all. What are you made of? Predominantly, you are made of liquids, yeah. So what would happen if you got put under there? You're liquid, you know. So what happened was they decided one day, interesting, let's put these lizard legs, only a couple of years back this happened, let's put them wrapped up in a sediment, like the flood sediments we find them in. So they wrapped it up, put it under incredible pressure and temperature for 24 hours, opened up, and they found fossils. Where'd the liquid go? It was absorbed into the sediment. How incredible is that? So, <laughs> in your case, in that case, two discoveries in one year, I think it's a professorial position for you. <laughs> Not a million, but a really good income. Okay? So, so, anyhow, all of that points to some interesting things. The other feature they found is that when we find intact uh, animals, or particularly dinosaurs or reptiles, there's one feature about them when we ask, well, how, how did they die? How did, how, what, what was the process? Look at the neck. It's arched backwards. When do you see animals and birds do that? When they drown. They drown. They're gasping for air. Fossil after fossil that's been found intact, the neck is arched. They drowned and then covered with a massive amount of sediment that we've never seen in modern history. In any event. And how else do we know they drowned? Because they're fossilised with the fish. There are hundreds of images, thousands of images like this. So the point is I was left now confused as an academic because what was I finding? How could I explain a billion fossils in a sedimentary deposit there called the Morrison Formation, 1.5 million square kilometres with over a billion fossils in it, tens, hundreds of metres deep, yet nowhere had I been on this planet from the Arctic to the deserts, 
could I find enough sediment to even fossilise a cockroach. In fact, studies all around the world to find fossils being created have come up with the figure zero. Nothing is being fossilised today. So where's the very foundation of science that says the past is the same as today and today is the same as the past? That's what Huxley and Darwin and all of them argued, that the processes are the same throughout history. Well, that can't be the case because we're not finding fossils today, nor are we finding the sediments able to make a fossil. We just don't find them anywhere in the world. And I've summarised that there, that we do find that fossils are global, so don't come to me and say it was a local flood. Fossils are found globally, right? You can go to South Africa and one plateau alone, another billion fossils. They're found globally. The sediment rates needed to create the fossils in any climate, any altitude, any extremity are not sufficient to create a fossil. And we've monitored that for 70 to 100 years. Fossilisation, other than there is, a, there is a hint that maybe a microbe is being fossilised off Canada. But other than that, we cannot observe any fossils being created today. The best sediment to create a fossil is a flood sediment. You see how all this is pointing back to the Bible, can't you? And that was my challenge. How do, I, how do I deal with this? And burial must be rapid, instantaneous and deep to prevent it from being predated. So that left me highly confused. Now, if you want more sciencey stuff, how do you keep up to date? You take one of these. Oh, look what's on the back. Oh, we are in the same league here. Oh, oh. It's got to be a sign. It's a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> This connects you to what we call our Infobytes. Our Infobytes come out about once every two weeks. It's a short little article designed for you, not for scientists. And it touches upon something that has come out recently that we will interpret for you. Look at it from another direction. This is so good. We don't just deal with uh, – I knew that slide wouldn't come up very well, so I didn't even bother correcting that one. It's from a, a PC, whereas you're using an Apple. Can I just suggest when you finish using an apple and grow up, move on to a PC? <laughs> it's like you don't have to ride a bike anymore. You can drive a car. Okay. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually was trained on an apple but then went to a university that only had PCs and I was forced to adapt. But those things are great. Look, it's free. You're going to get all this stuff. You can unsubscribe anytime you like. I'm not going to give you a phone call. I'm not going to send you some steak knives. It's not happening. You are immediately deleted from our system. But that, particularly for young people... That is a great tool to keep up to date with the latest thing that's come out but written by a team of people for you, not for us. Okay? Is that hard? Yes. My first paper in journals, yes, it gets accepted, gets accepted. My first paper with CMI, I had to rewrite that four times. I'm not kidding. Because why? They, that People won't understand that, Ron. I guess they will. They must be intelligent. No, Ron, you're being arrogant. Oh, okay, thank you. Which I was. You know, you're just not, you get too wrapped up in that academic world. The other thing is to go to our website. There's a search engine up the top right there and a, it's called creation.com. Is that hard to remember? Oh, I, I didn't hear enough. What is the site called? Thank you. That's not hard to remember, is it? That's good. There are 13,000 articles there for you to read. They're all free. Plagiarise us, copy us all you like. We don't, we're just happy. We're happy you do that. So you can do that and get all the information you want that I haven't given you today. This truckloads. Don't type the word flood in, you'll get 2,000 articles. Flood when, flood how, something, you know, add another, another word to that. And so I was now in a difficult position because I had been to churches. I had seen, you know, parts of the Bible. I'd listened to pastors. I tried not to listen to them, you know. I actually volunteered in a couple of churches where I attended for a short while. Why? So I didn't have to listen to the pastor. <laughs> Tea room, look after the kids, do anything, get out of that room. <laughs> but the seeds were planted nonetheless. <laughs> so, so Pastor Gary, just note who's really serving here, okay? <laughs> Are they in here right now or not? You know, that's, that's what you want to know. And so I get this statement here, you know, and behold, God said, I, you know, I myself am bringing. I am bringing. Flood waters on the earth. That made more sense to me from all of my flood studies and, uh, and I haven't even touched upon landforms or anything else I studied. They all pointed to the Bible. Whereas science that I had grown up with said, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as a world global flood. There was a regional flood in the Mesopotamian Black Sea area type thing. 
And I hear that from many Christians. It's sad where they say that the Bible doesn't really mean a global flood. It means a regional flood. If it's regional, then how come we're finding fossils in South Africa and the USA in massive scale under massive depths of water? No. What it was was a global flood. So I was absolutely torn apart by this. And then I started to realise that most things, fossils, their abundance, their sorting, the sediment, the landscapes, all of those things pointed to the Bible and not to evolution. So I was now a highly confused academic. Now, was I a professor? Yes, I'd been a professor in, in Finland, in Turku University, Turun Iliopisto. I learnt Finnish. Why? Because I embedded within the cultures. Didn't want to be an Aussie in those days. I, I, was, a, I was a professor at Chungmandaiho, you know, Cantonese-speaking. <coughs> All of these things. And I decided in the end to come back to Australia because now I felt grown up and I could handle Australia again. Not only could I handle Australia, I was now top boy. I was a professor in many countries. There I am with the Premier. I set up a research station on Fraser Island. Why do I set up a research station on Fraser Island? Because I could. <laughs> Seriously, because I could. I wanted to get in a four-wheel drive and hoon around there just like I was doing in Tripoli at 160. Parks and Wildlife got very upset and imposed an 80 sign up, you know, because this Ron Nella was driving around like a hoon everywhere. I, I, one day I brought a vehicle back. Oh, the university didn't know what to think about it. I drove out accidentally across a floodplain, thinking it was a floodplain, and it was a swamp. But the vegetation was so thick, went out, and then boom, straight down. We had to go tear apart some old remnant um, buildings, build a corrugated iron road, and I had to go between two trees. And to do that, we had to then raise the vehicle up. But it's one of those, I don't know what the jack is called, it's one of those big long ones that goes up. And the only way it could do it was to scratch the whole side of the vehicle as we pulled it up. So the whole logo of the university got ripped off, you know. And then he said, when you come through, you'll barely make it. And I did just get through those two trees in reverse with the corrugated iron scrunching up under me. And I got straight through, but I lost both side mirrors in the trees. Can you imagine the university when I got back to them? Say, had a great time in the field. It was great, yeah. What did you discover? We found a new swamp. <laughs> so, loved it. So how did I become a Christian? Because I then, coming back to set up a new university in Queensland, I came back and I said something silly to the university. I said, I think there's a God. Because it all pointed to a God. Now, was I saying I believe in God? No, I think there's a God. I was called up before a senior staff member, told never to say that again. Why, what's the problem? I'm not a Christian. Yeah, but you can't even say that. Okay. But then an atheist really started to tackle me. She'd heard about it, and so she said, you know, what? She, she couldn't understand it. There was no tutor or no lecturer or senior lecturer who believed in God. She somehow thought I believed in God and that I was a Christian because I said, there must be a God. So she misunderstood. Now, I didn't know how to handle her challenges. We worked in the same area, and so she... She, you know, I said, look, I haven't got time to talk about this. Go read the book. That's the academic. Any of you go to university and your lecturer says to you, go read the book, it's because they don't have the answer. They want you to go and read the book. They think, you think that, you know, they're trying to make you, no, they don't know. You know, they, they're not intelligent. They just don't know. So I said, go read the book. And so she came back weeks and weeks later and said, oh, I'm confused. Why does God kill so many people? Now, understand this. Atheists do read the book. The book. They read the Bible. They are so skilled in it. They are perhaps more skilled than we are because they'll read the whole Bible looking for anything they can. And so what happened? I said, what are you reading? And she said, well, I started at Genesis. And I went, oh, no, 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 I have heard. You're not supposed to start there. You should be studying the Gospels. And she walked away going, these Christians are insane. They won't even read the Bible from the beginning. They read it somewhere towards the back. And so she got, became more confused. And eventually she said to me, Take me to your church. I want to prove that God doesn't exist. What? Well, I didn't know what to do. So every time she walked this way, I walked that way. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And she kept pursuing me as an atheist. Her whole family was atheistic. Take me to your church. Well, I thought, okay, take you to a church. There's a big one down the road. Lots of music. You know, there was a band. And that was Calvary. So I drove down there one day, walked in, and she, in her mind, was going, oh, you have let me down again. Where's the organ? Where's the stained glass windows? 
what's that band doing on the stage? And everybody's rapping away, you know. This is not a church. Anyhow, the pastor gave the talk. And at the end of it all, he said, as they often do, close your eyes, lower your head, put your hand up if you wish to give your life to Christ. Guess what? She did. (laughs) Now here's an atheist dragging, by then I was agnostic, an atheist dragged an agnostic into a church and she gave her life to Christ. But she cheated with her eyes. She opened her left eye, looked over to me to see if I'd be happy that she'd become a Christian. And guess what? I had my hand up. (laughs) Where were the Christians in all of this? They weren't anywhere. It was an atheist challenging agnostic. We both gave our lives to Christ. She didn't annoy me anymore. So a year and a half later, I married her. She's just finished highly, uh, tr- high training at Lachlan Macquarie Institute. She's doing more theological training. She loves speaking at women's conferences and youth groups. She is passionate about serving the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So therefore the question comes back to each of us then. If an atheist can take an agnostic into a church and help them come to Christ, what are we doing? <laughs> I sort of go, oh. <laughs> what are we doing? So it just tells us, look, the Lord will take any opportunity, use every opportunity, use every circumstances. We must be attuned and listening to him and sensitive to everyone else around us so that we can bring them into Christ as well. So so what's so special about all this, about the book of Genesis, about the flood, about the six days? If you want to talk about the six days, come and see me afterwards. Love chatting about the six days. Well, a lot of people say it couldn't have happened in six days. So come and chat to me. I'll ask you a few questions. <laughs> At, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, go read the book. I, I actually, I actually you, you, you're giving me away. It's actually, I was, I was going to, you're, you're talking about Genesis. I was going to get you to read part of Exodus. Anyhow, it's another book. So what, what happens here is we at CMI, Creation Ministries, we get letters all the time by people who get our material. And here's an interesting one that came in from a person. How could I possibly believe the Bible if it was wrong from the very start? That's important, ladies and gentlemen. That's extremely important. We either accept it because the moment we challenge one part of it, well, which part do you challenge? Who gives you the right to say it's that part or that part or that part? Why do you think we have so many false teachers around? Because they're choosing parts of the Bible they accept and other parts they do not accept. And every one of them comes up with a different story. And that just simply weakens us as a community. And it's rife around the world in this 21st century. False teachers are everywhere. And so... Let me put it simply another way. There was a creator, according to the book of Genesis. There is a creator. That creator laid down a law for us, an incredible environment, the Garden of Eden. By the way, if you've been to the Sunshine Coast, you know that the Sunshine Coast is next to the Garden of Eden, don't you? It's so perfect, almost. (laughs) But anyway, a law was laid down. Did we... Abide by that law? Did we obey it? It took me about two nanoseconds to realise I can't point the finger at Adam. I was equally sinful. I would have made the same decision. So what happened? No, we sinned. It's laid there in the book of Genesis. As a result of that, since the law had been laid down, we will be judged. That was spelt out. But you know what? God loves us so much. Christ came to us. He suffered, tortured, but he did so to carry our burden, to carry it. He became our saviour. All of the foundation of the very purpose of Christ is laid down in the book of Genesis. We must never challenge the book of Genesis. Because why? Because all the atheistic world don't attack Christ himself. Have you noticed that? They don't because they know that if I came up to you and said, do you believe in Christ, you will become firm. Most of you will say yes. But if they come up to us and say, did the six days really happen? Did the big flood happen? How many Christians go, oh, I don't, you know, it's what it says, but I'm not sure. Why do the, that's why the atheists attack us. Notice also when you look at any book on false teachers, the false teachers also attack the book of Genesis. Over and over again. Why? They are removing the creator. That's the purpose. Take the creator out. Now, if you take the creator out, 
What are you left with? Think about it. What are you left with? Nothing. Because there was no law laid down. Without a creator, there is no law. If there was no law, you did not sin. If you did not sin, you will not be judged. Therefore, the very purpose and foundation of Christ is now redundant. We don't need him. That's why we must not accept false teachers or atheists who challenge the book of Genesis. That is the foundation of our very belief. So, Jesus is the centre of creation. Let's always look at the full Bible, not just the New Testament. The Old Testament is a witness to him. The New Testament is an eyewitness to his majesty. Brilliant. Love it. It is combined and so on. And just after joining CMI, I was taken to a cardiologist. He said, no, you're healthy, but something else is wrong. He said, "Uh, do you feel anything? I said, no. He said, I know you're very, very ill, but I don't know how. Your blood chemistry, nothing comes up. Do you have anything at all? I said, well, I occasionally get a strange taste and smell, very intense foulness. He went, no, 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 no. That's, that's the death signal. MRI right now. I was rushed in. I came out. I'll find out the results later. No, the technicians come around. No, no, take this immediately back to the doctor. And I was rushed to hospital. My wife was called and said he'll be dead within two weeks. Massive tumour in the brain. My left hemisphere had been moved seven millimetres into my right. They pondered over it. They didn't know what to do. I was rushed to Brisbane to see one of the top uh, neurosurgeons, Frank Tomlinson. He's brilliant, that man. And he was looking at it. And they pondered. They had to shrink the brain because my brain had actually swollen. And they said it will take two weeks, but we don't think he'll make it. A couple of days before the operation, the Lord came to me. It was magnificent. My wife didn't hear anything. She just held me, but she saw what I went through. He came to me and he said this, Why are you afraid to die? My armour is around you, my arm is around you, and the door of heaven is open. And what I saw, ladies and gentlemen, was spectacular. Unbelievably spectacular. We can read Revelations all we like. We just will not capture the beauty and the majesty and the glory And I actually turned to take a step through the door. I wanted to go. But he closed it. I then realised in the silence that he had said, why are you afraid to die? So I said to him in tears, serve. I have not served. Even though I was a Christian. And he said back to me in Old Testament style, because he loves us, but he he won't... He won't go, oh, that's good to hear. Come on, yeah, high five. Let's talk about possibilities. He doesn't do that. He said simply this. Who do you seek to serve? Yourself or Christ? I collapsed and just sobbing and sobbing. And softly I said later, Christ. Gave me another message for another person. Can't share that. What happened? I just suddenly became alive. The hospital wanted to call the counsellors and therapists in. They'd never seen a patient so close to death, now bopping around, the, doing, the, doing the moonwalk, you know, <laughs> in, in the hospital. They couldn't believe it. I was then taken in for a four-hour operation. took 11 hours. They had to cut the head in half. They couldn't drill through it. So I'm cut from here to here. You come up close, you'll see the left side of the skull has collapsed. All the rest of it. They had to peel my face off. Otherwise the skin gets stretched. I wanted the photographs. I wanted to know what I look like as a fossil. (laughs) They won't give them to me. (laughs) So disappointing about that. Except one of my graduates was actually in there. He was the guy that looks after all the the, uh, analyses of the cellular structure. So he illegally showed me some of the cellular structure. And he said, your tumour is perfect. It's been there for a long time. And we're going to write a paper about it. So I've had another paper written on me on these perfect, because normally cancerous and tumour cells are chaotic. This was perfect. I said, oh, that's really great. What's all those other cells around there? He said, oh, that's your brain. You can imagine me going, what? 
my brain. He said, yeah, of course we have to remove part of it. But that's okay. Your brain is God's creation. It doesn't damage it. What it does, your brain hides, stores. I don't understand all of that. But over the years, it's all come back to me in rushes. And even when I went into Adelaide yesterday, into Glenelg, it hit me again. I have been to Glenelg. And it suddenly it all rushed back into my head and all came back again. So that was wonderful. But as I lay in hospital, one miracle happened straight away. I was taken out of ICU straight away. As soon as I woke up, I started reading the Bible. I said, it's not possible. Brain surgery patients can't read for a month. They need to be re-educated. I said, I can read it. And I was stunned. It's not possible. And they gave me the menu for food. No, I don't understand a word. But I could read the Bible. And there was a message, which I'm not sharing, because one of the nurses said, it does occasionally happen to a Christian. The Lord has a single message for you. I read it later. It was powerful. I knew it was for me. I'm not sharing it. But it certainly changed me. But while I was there, just to wrap it up then, look at this. Jesus is the centre of creation because in that wonderful scripture from Colossians 1.15 to 17, it says, He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I'm an academic. I had to underline bold and italicize the word before him so that we could come up with a simpler statement that is so powerful because that, that scripture is so powerful. Let's bring it back to its core. Is Jesus the centre of creation? Yes, because it is by him, through him, for him and in him. It captures that totally in those words. So join with me. I'm going to ask you the question. Is Jesus the centre of creation? The answer is yes, because it is by him, through him, for him, in him. Isn't that amazing? How cool is that? The Lord speaks to us in so many wonderful ways. How do you now wrap it up? Our job is to equip and empower you. That's what we do. That's what the creation ministries is for, to equip and empower you. Do we make any money out of these? The answer is no. We live entirely by donations. We try to do the best we can with everything we've got to help you because we want this maximised out there in the community to help Christians today understand that they're under attack against false teachers, understand they're under attack by atheists, understand that in fact you're under attack by the entire media the entire educational system, because in Queensland, last year they passed legislation that says evolution is no longer a theory, it is fact, and it will be taught even by the Christian schools as factual. That's where it gets off. So, what do we offer you? This one's a great one. This is a study done of many Christians and what they get asked about being a Christian. You know how people come up to you and go, oh, are you a Christian? And you go, yeah. And then you get some unusual question. We've documented over 60 of them here, you know. So you just look it up and you go, so somebody comes up, are you a Christian? You go, yeah. Okay. So who did Cain marry? <laughs> go read the book, okay, you'll get the answer. <laughs> Another one that's just come out recently is for teenagers or, or young adults rather going to university. It's called the Creation Survival Guide. It's only a $4 little book, and that is designed to help them understand that in universities they will be attacked. There's no issue about that in Australia now. 80% of young Christian students going into university will lose their faith. That's the figure, 80%. This is the first of a bunch I hope we get out that helps prepare them to understand what they're going to face when they go to university. So from year 10 onwards, I would recommend that one. I did have another one up. It is spectacular. We don't have any, though. You know why? Lamaru went crazy. <laughs> I just bought everything. So, uh, and, uh, so this is spectacular. It's hard copy. It takes our 40 years of our magazine, which is so successful. It's the longest-ranging magazine on creation around the world. It took the 40 years of best articles. We redigitized them, edited them to make sure they're up to date. Beautiful color, nice thick paper, no, you know. Ah, oh, absolutely spectacular. Spectacular. Now, that is a gift for Christmas to another family. It is unbelievably short articles on every possible topic and all written for the public, not for us. Now, if you do order that, by the way, here, it'll be sent to you without postage charge. Whereas if you don't order it here, 
It doesn't. It gets a postage charge attached to it. What I did, though, is I did put this one here. For those of you who are very serious, which I expected to find in here, this book came out, Evolution of the Christian Faith. I have used this book even to help pastors. A Singaporean pastor called me up and said, I'm struggling against liberal theology, all this atheistic view that seems to pervade in. I said, mate, read this book here. It's, it's for those who are you know, really interested in the deeper stuff. He rang me up later and he said, Ron, thank you. You've rescued me from falling into the pit the others have fallen into. Uh, the tickets are on their way now. You're coming to Singapore to speak. And he looked after me. That's very good. That's a, that's a much more powerful one uh, for those who want to pursue that deeper. And finally, the Creation Magazine, that is our number one. We love it. The Creation Magazine, 40 years. Every cover is different. It's every one of them is carries a biological, earth science, space science. There's a children's section. There's an interview with a Christian, whether they be an actor or a pastor or anybody else. Every one of these, lots of little short articles as well, sort of little news upbites and so on. They are amazing. And that, that is a very powerful tool. Why? Because people, ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't buy this for yourself. Carry it with you once you've read it. Read it, understand it, and then carry it. Because we have testimony after testimony. Prisoners from jail say, I saw this on the shelf, I read it. We don't know who gave it to them. And they, I've given my life to Christ. And that. Now we did a study of a thousand of these to be given away. Carry them under your arm like this. You notice it's called creation, not Christian. That's to open up doors. Everyone who loves gems wants to know about creation. So we carry it like this. And a study done of, a, of sorry, 1,000 people, you go, yes, I love my coffee. Mine is always a double-shot cappuccino. Just letting you know. <laughs> double-shot cappuccino, small, you know. It's to put the colour back in my hair. I'm not grey, I'm koala, okay? <laughs> the point being is that then what we did, or particularly those who really ran this, just said, ah, oh, Thank you for my cappuccino. Yep, yep. Look, have you seen, have you ever read this magazine? They all went, no. Oh, okay. Look, I have. Did you want it? 950 people took it without a question. Isn't that amazing? Which was really funny because when I was taken out in the field to be trained in this, I was taken out by Taz Walker. And we walked into a store and he, he just, you know, checking some stuff out. He said, ah, oh, thank you very much. Okay. Have you ever seen this? And the lady went, oh, yes, yes, I get it. <laughs> I subscribe to it. That's great. Taz is going, oh, well, there goes Ron's lesson. He's just been <laughs> <laughs> tried to show me something. So people give that down. Did we do that? Yes, we gave it to our family members who are not Christian. Julie's family atheistic, mine alcoholic. 50% of Julie's family are now Christian. 50% of mine have given up alcohol and become Christians. Isn't that powerful? That is so wonderful. And I'm going to leave you with this one, the one that hit us the most early this year while my wife was at Lachlan Macquarie. She was taken away by ACL to help train students when they have those big gatherings of students at the end of high school and uh, hundreds of them there. What happened was there was a bit of an uproar when one of the great speakers, these are wonderful Christian men, said billions of years. The students went into a, no, no, that didn't happen. And, they, you know, Michael's getting, uh, um, sorry, ACL's, Martin. Martin was getting, what? What's going on? He has no problem with thousands of years. But the students, you know, they were objecting to that person. We're going to walk out. And they, these, are, these are top high school students and, and that. And they wondered what's going on. And then one of them just said, well, we believe in creation. And, and turned and said, that lady there, her name is Julie Neller. And they looked, yeah. Are you married to Ron Neller? And she said, yes. She said, I've read Ron's articles. So she Poor Julie was then inundated for the rest of the training season with every coffee and every lunch. And what happened in the end, we found they decided to ask the class, how many of you had your family had that lying around? Not subscribed to them, just sitting around the home. Over 50% said straight away we do. And many others said later, yeah, well, we do. I just didn't want to stand up. Here's the point. We wouldn't even touch 5% of the market. Isn't that incredible? We don't even touch 5% of the market, but those families who have this lying around the home, the kids, as they're growing up, will just read it anyway, 
And by the time they get to that point of going to university and they go into advanced ACL training, they are powerfully embedded in the Bible and they will not accept an alternative. In other words, those students are not part of the 80% that we're going to lose. So as a parent or an auntie or an uncle or a grandparent, that is an incredible gift to give to people. Sorry, go back there. And this is what... I, we did a little cartoon on the basis of that. We thought this would be quite interesting. When the father says, see the rainbow, it reminds us that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. The young boy goes, really? My Christian college professor or just my university professor said Noah's flood was confined to the Middle East, which we know scientifically now it was not. But had they been raised on the Creation magazine, the young boy's attitude would have been, yes, but how come my professors can't see that a global flood did once occur? totally different attitude going to university or to jobs. Leave all that for the guys out the back. They're brilliant at signing people up and all that stuff. If you do get it for three years, by the way, uh, you'll get a, one of these free copies. You'll also get a discount of $15, which will actually give you one of these books for free if you, if you do a three-year. I won't go to that. Those guys out the back are good for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the passion and in some of our cases the patience and what you had to go through to bring us to you, Lord. We can't comprehend that, Lord. We can't comprehend your love to the extent that you, have it, that you share with us. We can't comprehend your majesty. We can't comprehend much of it, but we do understand, Lord, that you are our one and only way through Christ, to be brought back together again as a family and a family for all time, Lord. So, Lord, we just thank you for your patience on us, each with a different journey. As we share that journey, we get so many wonderful different stories of how we came to Christ, but always you were the one who brought us there, Lord. We simply become the cedars, the planters. You are the harvester, Lord, and we thank you so much for your blessing upon all of us and your forgiveness of us that we all come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We praise you, Lord, for this wonderful. So we therefore ask, Lord, that this acceptance of the Bible in this very difficult time, in this 21st century when there is so much atheism and so much media, so much education, so many false teachers out there, Lord, give us strength, give us power, give us authority to stand on the Bible, Lord, from front to back, to accept it fully as your gift to us, Lord, not for our own interpretation, but to read it as you have given it to us. Very clear, very blunt, very obvious. Strengthen us, Lord, not just this weekend, but strengthen us, Lord, as we move forward in the weeks and months to come, that we will not shy away from our faith simply because we struggle with various parts of the Bible, but through growth and prayer and counselling with our pastors and so on, Lord, you will help us become stronger and better able to defend the fullness of the Bible the unity of the Bible. We ask that, Lord. We ask your Holy Spirit to come upon us, especially to give us that blessing of accepting the Bible from front to back. And Lord, I just pray personally that you bless this church, pour out your Holy Spirit upon it, Lord, a blessing that this church be blossoming in people, absolutely continuing the impact upon this, this community, Lord, as I've seen it doing, just even hearing the little bits, Lord. So, so wonderful to hear this church, Lord, is just ask for your blessing upon Pastor Gary, upon all those team of people who are actually working directly and, and indirectly, serving in some way, Lord. Ask you to bless them abundantly, Lord, and ask them to grow as well that others will join and people will come in. Ask for an incredible blessing upon this church, Lord, always through the wonderful and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.